BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. While thousands of evacuated residents who fled South Lake Tahoe because of the Caldor fire are being allowed back home, other communities remain in limbo. That includes Grizzly Flats between Lake Tahoe and Sacramento, which is where the fire first started nearly a month ago. El Dorado County Sheriff Sergeant Eric Palmberg says there's a lot of damage crews are trying to sift through. There's a lot of, of different things going on in the Grizzly Flat area. We literally have thousands, if not tens of thousands of trees that have been burned, that a lot of those are going to need to be cut down as hazards. There's just a, a very large amount of debris up there. PG&E is making repairs. And Palmberg says getting utilities up and running has been a huge challenge. Those homes do not currently have water because Grizzly Flat Water is still trying to repair their service lines. So that is another reason. So the infrastructure in the area, we're trying to make those repairs, get that all up to speed. Now, in terms of the firefight itself, crews continue to make progress in building containment, particularly in areas of concern like around Kirkwood Ski Resort and the towns of Christmas Valley and Echo Lake. The fire has burned more than 216,000 acres and is nearing 50% containment. Meanwhile, to the north, thousands of firefighters continue to battle the state's largest blaze, the Dixie Fire, which has now burned more than 914,000 acres. A particular concern is the Dixie Valley, where some homes were destroyed over the weekend. Several spot fires have threatened containment lines in the past two days, as crews are now being assigned to areas where the fire is most active. The blaze has already burned nearly 700 homes. Turning now to the pandemic, in the San Joaquin Valley, state officials have issued a COVID-19 health order after determining the valley's hospitals have met the threshold to enter surge protocols. What does that mean? Well, hospitals in the 12-county region must accept transfer patients if they have ICU bed capacity. And if there are no ICU beds available, hospitals outside the region must accept patients when clinically appropriate. San Joaquin County Public Health Officer Dr. Maggie Park says hospitals in the Central Valley are struggling right now. Our current daily numbers of confirmed positive cases and the number of people admitted to hospitals for COVID-19 now surpass the peak numbers we had during the wave of summer 2020. We knew that this surge might be as bad as last summer's, but we've passed last summer's numbers and still haven't reached the peak of this current surge. 
Park says that while other parts of the state have seen COVID numbers stabilize, that's not the case in the Central Valley, which has some of the lowest vaccination rates in the state. In fact, less than 40% of residents in four counties, Kern, Kings, Mariposa, and Merced, have been fully vaccinated. The hospital order from the state's Department of Public Health will be in place until Thursday, when the region's numbers will be reevaluated. And staying on COVID, according to the California Department of Public Health, 47 million COVID vaccinations have been given in the state and 84 million tests administered. When it comes to COVID testing, one increasingly popular option is at-home test kits. I talked about home test kits with Catherine Wu, a healthcare writer with The Atlantic, who's long written about COVID and COVID testing. My first question, do at-home COVID tests really work? work? Well, it really, really varies, actually. Um, Depending on what you count as a home test, there are really dozens of models out there at this point. You know, some of them you like spit in a tube or you swab your nose and then you ship it off to a lab and they process it and they send you the results. And that's still nice because you don't have to go to a doctor's office or a testing site to take your test. Others, you do the entire process yourself in your living room. And basically the way that I break it down is uh, you sort of distinguish between the way that the virus is being detected in that test. That's generally where uh, where accuracy segregates. So for those lab tests um, and for some of the entirely at-home tests, what they're looking for is virus genetic material. So the RNA that is inside uh, each of those viral particles that are getting inside of your body. And the way that that works is they're able to, you know, bust those viral particles open and copy that genetic material over and over and over. So it's really easy to detect a very tiny amount of virus. Um, It makes those tests super sensitive and they're really accurate. It's pretty hard for them to mess up and say, oh, the virus isn't here or uh, make the opposite mistake and say the virus is here when it's actually not. That changes a little bit when you switch to a different method where you're no longer looking for the genetic material, but you're looking for viral proteins. So, you know, chunks of the virus, um, these don't get copied over and over. You're basically just scanning for what's already there. So it's a lot easier to miss the virus when it's in pretty low amounts. Uh, So that's kind of where uh, the big question is um, on accuracy. And Catherine, is anybody out there regulating these tests like the FDA or some other agency? Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's a really good point to bring up. So the FDA is regulating these tests, but keep in mind that all of these are under emergency use authorization, um, kind of of the same ilk that uh, our vaccines, um, that all our vaccines were up until very recently when Pfizer got full approval. Uh, So, you know, they've been vetted, companies had to submit data, but it's not the full uh, total like FDA, like green lit stamp of approval that you would see for other products that offer diagnostic capabilities. Uh, I think what's important to keep in mind is there are still, you know, some black market tests floating around out there that are not FDA approved, and it's probably worth uh, staying away from those, though, you know, most of the tests that you will find that say, you know, home testing, you can usually check pretty easily uh, if that has the FDA's emergency authorization. And the FDA does keep a list on their website. You can search uh, things like FDA, COVID-19 molecular diagnostics, or antigen diagnostics, for example. And are the home COVID tests that are, at least right now, thought to be good to very good, are they as good as the tests you would get 
at a clinic or at your local pharmacy? Yeah, it's a good question. I think for the ones that are getting processed through a lab, absolutely, with one teeny tiny caveat, uh, the fact that you are sampling yourself at home, that might introduce a little bit of error. Um, most of us are not used to sticking swabs up our noses on a regular basis or spitting into tubes. And, you know, that that is generally pretty simple, but occasionally you know, you might spill something or cap something wrong, something could get lost in transit. So there's a tiny, tiny risk there. That's more to do with sample collection than how good the test itself is. And by that, I mean, you know, how it's processed and how your results are calculated and sent back to you. I think there maybe is a little bit more error when you're using those like rapid antigen tests, which are the ones that are looking for bits of protein. Um, but the nice thing is those are so convenient. You get the results instantaneously. And so there's definitely a trade-off, you know, the faster the test is, uh, probably the more you're going to lose in terms of accuracy. But this is where another strategy can come in. If you take those tests frequently enough, you know, maybe if you miss something on Monday, you'll catch it on Tuesday or Wednesday. And that can be a sort of way to um, patch loss in quality with quantity. Hmm. And the tests aren't cheap, right? At least a lot of them aren't. So how much can people yeah. expect to shell out? I think this is the trick with a lot of home testing. Um, you know, right now, well, I guess throughout the pandemic, uh, there have been ways to get free testing for this virus um, at mass testing sites, but things get a little trickier when we route this entirely to at-home testing. Uh, some of the cheapest tests out there and some of the most convenient tests out there are still costing like $24 for a two-pack. Uh, and if you're, you're trying to test yourself multiple times a week, that can really rack up a bill, especially if you live in a household with other people and you'll all want to be testing if you're working worried about exposure or risk in that sense. And then, you know, the more expensive lab tests or the ones that search for that more sensitive genetic material, they can get even more expensive, $50, $75. It really costs quite a bit. And I know there are a lot of experts saying, you know, why isn't the government footing this bill? Why can't we all have access to free rapid tests, which they are actually doing in some other countries? And, you know, beyond testing yourself at home, do you foresee institutions uh, using these these kind of home rapid tests? Like for instance, here in Los Angeles, the LA Unified is requiring, you know, testing for, for students and staff. Do, do you see institutions of that size or private companies uh, using these tests? Yeah. And, and, and that is happening. And I think the nice thing there is there are versions of a lot of these home tests that are, uh, you know, not like over the counter, buy it for yourself and do it at home. There are like $5 versions that companies and schools can purchase for, uh, I think at least cheaper testing, if not totally cheap testing. And so, you know, there are schools uh, screening their students with rapid antigen tests. There are schools screening their students with um, what's called pooled testing, where a bunch of samples are combined together and all those are tested at once just to make the process more efficient. Uh, there are a lot of ways to go about this. And I know there are some workplaces that are asking, especially unvaccinated employees to either test themselves regularly or submit to company testing. And it really varies um, who is footing the bill. I think the important thing to keep in mind here, though, is that we can't use testing as a standalone protection procedure. Like if that's in place at a school, it can't be the only thing in place at a school. Because remember that a test is really only going to catch an infection that's 
And just finally, in the realm of news you can use, I mean, if you're someone listening to us talk about these home COVID tests and they're saying to themselves, hmm, I'm interested in that, maybe I'll purchase one. Do you have any general consumer advice for them? I think there are two things to keep in mind here. Uh, Even before you are choosing which product to purchase, think about why you're taking the test and really think hard about that. I think it is really tempting to take a test and say, oh, if this is negative, I am going to go to that indoor wedding where they're not requiring masks or requiring proof of vaccination. That is super, super tempting. But, you know, keep in mind, you take that test two days in advance of the wedding. You have no idea what's going to happen in those two days. We know variants like Delta spread super fast and they accumulate super quickly in the airway. So you don't know what's going to happen. A test can't predict the future. Uh, Those are super important things to keep in mind. I think across the board, experts are telling me, you know, don't use use a one-off test result to greenlight you to shed other public health measures. It should not prompt a drastic change in behavior. That's not what tests can do right now. But, you know, if it's if it's something different, like I want to see my parents who are vaccinated and we haven't seen each other in a long time, we're going to be hanging out outdoors or, you know, we're going to be a little bit careful about masking when we're indoors. You know, it makes sense to test as a, an extra layer of reassurance that the measures that you do have in place are working. I think that's a good way to sort of layer protections on top of one another. And if you're doing that, you know, consider the trade-offs. If you want to find a genetic test, that might take a little longer to process. Uh, Is it going to make sense? Do you have time for that? Is your event tomorrow? You probably don't have time for a laboratory test if that's the case. Uh, In that case, you know, maybe seek out uh, a rapid test, one of those antigen tests that you can do with just a nose swab in your living room in 15 minutes. So think about the timing, think about your price range. And also, honestly, availability is a huge deal right now. A lot of these tests are flying off the shelves. It's been hard to find them on Amazon, at Walgreens. At a certain point, uh, people should keep in mind that sometimes just any well-vetted test is better than no test at all. Hmm. All right. That is Catherine Wu of The Atlantic and one of the smartest people covering uh, the COVID pandemic in all of its forms. Thank you so much for joining us on the California Report. Thank you for having me. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fettah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.
Over Labor Day weekend, up to 2 million Californians lost emergency unemployment benefits created to help get them through the pandemic. As people who still haven't found work try to move forward with less support, the California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin brings us a story of two Californians who fear they may never recover. Ray Garnica lives in Beaumont in Riverside County. He was a financial data analyst for an automotive part manufacturer when he got laid off at the beginning of the pandemic. Between owning his own home and having advanced degrees, Garnica was arguably in a much more stable spot than most. Because I have a bachelor's in engineering and a master's in business. So that makes it seem like, well, you have great value, Ray. Like people should be chomping at the bit to hire you. But it doesn't, unfortunately. Garnica says he's paid two different companies to rework his resume. And the thing is that I'm not that picky. I would take lesser paying jobs. He says despite all the applications he's submitted, he's only gotten two interviews in the last two years. And usually the biggest stress is at the end of the month when all the bills start coming due. And you're like, okay, am I going to default on this bill? Is it more advantageous for me to pull money out of my 401k? If I put money out of my 401k, how does that affect my unemployment if I am going to get unemployment? Garnica initially felt confident he'd find another job, so he waited before signing up for Covered California. Then, after he did, the day before his new insurance took effect... I got a heart attack. I didn't go to the hospital right away because my insurance didn't kick in until midnight. That was kind of like a crappy situation to be in, right? Garnica is only 42, and fortunately, he's recovered. It's impossible to know the root cause of his heart attack, but there is long-standing data linking unemployment to health issues and even increased risks for cardiovascular disease. The population health issues that arise over the next years could very well be tightly linked to unemployment that we've seen that's been spurred by the pandemic. Jenny Brand is a sociologist with UCLA. She says unemployment can spur stress and cause people to put off getting health care trigger depression, even lead to alcohol or drug abuse. Just this past February, a UC San Francisco study estimated that more than 30,000 Americans would die in the first year of the pandemic as a result of unemployment. And people who were already more vulnerable are more likely to get hit the hardest, especially older workers and workers of color. And then you also have these same groups of folks who tend to work, you know, disproportionately in low-paid jobs. Rebecca Dixon is executive director of the National Employment Law Project. And so don't have savings to fall back on in these kinds of times. Melissa Huerta knows all about that. Before the pandemic, the 46-year-old Stanislaus County resident had savings put away and was able to support herself and her daughter through her in-home nail business. I used to have, I'd say, like, at least... 10, 12 clients, and now I'm down to like two or three. I'm not making even a quarter of what I was making before. Which has been really tough because Huerta also cares for her 19-year-old daughter, Mariah, who has special needs. The instability has been especially hard for her daughter, Huerta says. I'm not able to take her out to go do fun things. I'm barely making ends meet. I don't have money barely for gas sometimes. It's just, it's hard. On top of all of this, her unemployment benefits have been tied up for months, even after she won an appeal because of an EDD error. And she's still waiting on what's probably over $10,000 worth of payments. But even if she does get paid, and after she pays the 25% to the company she's hired to help her get her money, 
she might not break even. I feel like I'm barely going to be able to hopefully pay everybody back. I'll be like if I cut even, put it that way. I'm still going to have to struggle to start from scratch again. People like Huerta and Garnica, who are considered long-term unemployed, are likely to suffer both health and economic ramifications for years if data from previous recessions holds true. Research, including a 2014 Brookings Institution study, shows the longer someone is out of work, the less likely they are to be able to find a full-time steady job. UC Berkeley economist Sylvia Allegretto explains. A lot of people end up getting jobs but never getting jobs that pay quite what they used to be paid. Many people end up, you know, depleting some of their, if not all of their regular savings. Garnica is waiting to hear back from a recent interview with a startup. He says even if he gets an offer, he's expecting it to be for half of what he used to make. Huerta still hasn't received the thousands in retroactive unemployment payments, the last ones she'll get since the emergency program she's on has expired and she doesn't qualify for regular unemployment. And last week, her doctor found cysts on her lymph nodes, so now she's waiting on her benefits and an explanation of her blood work. For The California Report, I'm Mary Franklin Harvin. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, September 7th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits, stanfordhealthcare.org slash adaptingcare. SF MoMA, presenting the world premiere of Joan Mitchell, a stunning retrospective of over 80 works by the trailblazing painter who made art on her own terms. Learn more at sfmoma.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.